Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, welcome to Bergen Park Church. We love you guys. And I was thinking this morning as, as, as we were singing just how much God longs for us to trust him. That everything that God has done through Jesus Christ is so that we would trust his love for us, that we trust his truth, that we would trust that he is with us and he is there for us. You know how often in Scripture it says, you know, I'm with you. (laughs) I'm with you. Whether it's in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm with you. I'm Emmanuel, God with us. I am the Word, the indwelling God that has become flesh and I've tabernacled, meaning I'm dwelling among you. And as we go through challenges and trials in life, it is a a huge comfort not just to know that he's with us, I think that's the first step, but to experience that he's with us. And that's part of what the church is, is to help us experience the presence of the Lord. To experience him, some of us are more in the head, and, and we just experience him as we get into his word, and we need to be in groups where we can do that. For some of us, it's as we gather in prayer and as we worship, and some of us are much more expressive, and we shout, and we stamp, and that's, that's exciting. We, we experience the presence of God. Some of us, it's in doing things and serving, serving others and caring for others. But the church is about experiencing the presence of God, knowing the Lord together, being with him so that we can go out into a world and do what, what Jesus did. And today we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 9, and I have to admit, I feel like this morning I kind of woke up with a panic attack. Like, why did you, why did you have to cover so much? But you know, as I study during the week, I get all these, this stuff just starts coming at me, and I start getting excited. I'm like, yeah, of course we can cover all that, so we're going to need the Spirit and the presence of God, excuse me, to, uh, to guide us as we go through this. This is a beautiful passage. You know, when Matthew and the Gospels are writing, they're not just telling these little cute individual stories that, oh, wasn't that nice. They're actually, Matthew's giving us an argument. And he's showing us the, the majesty, the, the complexity of Jesus. And Jesus reveals the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so what Matthew's doing is presenting this Jesus that we worship, this God that that says, I want you to trust me. And what we're looking at is Matthew's kind of presented this idea that Jesus is one who has authority, and that can be frightening in the sense that many of us had bad experiences with people in authority. So you wonder, what kind of authority is this? Because he teaches with authority, and then he goes out and he casts out the oppressed, the demon-possessed with authority. He says to the storm, be still. He heals with authority. And then in chapter 9, what happens is he begins to transition from these miracles that demonstrate the power that he has to how Jesus is revealing the Father in the Father's presence in a new and unique way. And in a way, I want you to understand that's breaking and shattering all categories. That what we see in chapter 9 is really quite shocking. It's the shocking reality of how grace moves out into the world, and God begins to change people who never thought it was possible 
for them to change. And as the disciples are watching this, every single one of these stories, I want you to understand, it's, it's beginning to shake their understanding of the Father and how God is at work in the world. And as we go through this, it's supposed to send us out of this room in a different manner than we walked in, seeing the world differently because we know the Jesus that we worship. So let's jump in Matthew chapter 9 and pick it up in verse, in verse 1. And so getting into a boat, he crossed over to his own city, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man, a man called Matthew, sitting at a tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table, at Matthew's table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, the Pharisees saw this and they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he, Jesus, heard this, he said, listen, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And so go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then the disciples of John came to him and said, hey, why do we in the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is still with them? Now the days will come when the bridegroom is going to be taken away from them, and, and then they'll fast. But see, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will tear away from the garment, and the tear will be worse. And neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved." This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, meet us. Well, Father, you're here. We want to meet you through the power of the Spirit, through your living and abiding word. You tell us as we gather, the manifest presence of God is with us. And so, Father, as we, we acknowledge our desperate need for you, you are our Redeemer, our Savior. You are our healer. You are our wisdom. You are our comfort. 
Enable us, Father, to trust you and to see you, Jesus, for who you are. Help us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So three stories. All of them have some kind of religious controversy around them. And these controversies, they're not the kind of controversies where someone's trying to trap Jesus. They're the kind of controversies where Jesus is doing something so new, so radically new that it's shocking. And the people around Jesus are saying, wait a minute, that's not how it works. I was thinking this whole week of any illustration that could possibly come up that would be this shocking, and this is about as good as it gets, okay? It's not very good. That's not a great way to begin an illustration. But When I was a kid, in my neighborhood, you always called adults Mr. and Mrs. I don't know if you grew up in that neighborhood, but it was like serious, dead serious. When I called a neighbor by their first name, I mean, you thought oh my goodness, that I had done the worst thing possible. Because that, that was my street. Maybe you had a different kind of neighborhood. And so growing, the older I got, here's what happened. As I got in my 20s, I was still saying Mr. and Mrs. And then in my 30s, I'm like Mr. and Mrs. And then finally, my neighbors were like, listen, Jason, call us by our first name. And I'm like, I, I can't. I just, I can't. And, and it was this kind of cultural step of crossing from this line of seeing this authority, recognizing who these neighbors were, and then having this familiarity with them and this relationship. It's like, wait a minute, we're equals now? I'm not a child any longer? We can actually talk about things. And and understand, that's a poor way of introducing this, but the shock of that, that stepping over these lines into something more familial, where God is kind of breaking out of the the normal categories that we've experienced God and his presence is moving out into the world in a way that's completely unexpected. And in fact, it is absolutely shocking. Now, the first story is a well-known story. It's a story that's often told to children. It's the story of the paralytic. Now, Matthew doesn't give you a lot of details. If you read this, you kind of go, where's the house? They're in a house. Where's all the crowds? Where's digging in the roof of the house? Matthew, these are all the good details. And he leaves them out. Now, Matthew leaves them out, understand, because to Matthew, the most important detail is Jesus. He wants you to see, and he's making an argument for who Jesus is. And the whole gospel of Matthew is just absolutely overwhelmed with Jesus. It starts in Matthew 1. It says, listen, this guy is the descendant of Abraham and David. He's in the right lineage. And then he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount as one who has authority, not like the scribes or the teachers of the law. No, 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 no. When he says something, it comes to pass. It's kind of like Genesis 1. When God spoke, something happened. And then not only did he teach with authority, but see what's happening in chapters 8 and 9 is everything he does is wrapped in authority. He touches a leper and the leper is healed. This centurion has a servant who is sick, and Jesus just simply says the word, and in that moment, this man was healed. He encounters these two demoniacs, and he casts out these oppressive spirits on a sea. He simply says the word, and the storm is calm. Jesus has this authority, and what happens in chapter 9 is he also has the authority to forgive. And so these men are bringing this paralytic to Jesus, and in verse 2, I would imagine for the paralytic, this was maybe anticlimactic, but notice what it says. And behold, when some men brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed, because he can't walk, 
When Jesus saw their faith, meaning the faith of these friends, he said to the paralytic, hey, take heart, my son. And this word, my son, in the Greek is actually this idea of my little boy. Don't be afraid. Your sins are forgiven. Now, that's powerful. But what's he expecting? Probably expecting to get healed. But when he says your sins are forgiven, I want you to understand part of this man's story. His whole life, he assumed it was his fault. He's paralyzed. Something about me, there's a condition. There's shame, there's guilt. And imagine his parents must have felt it as well. Many people looked at him and said, oh, what did you guys do? To have a child. Many people in that day assumed that if something bad happened to you, it's because you're being punished. And maybe you've had that same view of God. So when he says, my son, take heart, don't be afraid, listen, I'm for you. You're forgiven. Now, here's the challenge with Jesus saying, you're forgiven. Who do you think you are? Jesus. You don't get to do that. You see, in Jesus' day, you knew how forgiveness worked. It was actually quite public. You know, today you sin and you confess to the Father, right? No one has to know about it. <laughs> well, not in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, you had to go to the temple. And so here's Jason again, back at the temple. Everybody knows, everybody knows something's going, you may not know exactly, but depending on the animal, you'd kind of be like, wow, that's, something's really going on. <laughs> and so I've got this picture, it's from... Um, I think it's the Jerusalem, Israel, some museum. It's a museum in Jerusalem is what it is. And, and what they've done is they recreated what Jerusalem looked like and the temple looked like in Jesus' day. And it's about half a football field kind of laid out so you can walk around it. I've not actually seen it. But this is the temple. And so when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, what he's doing is he's using language that the priests would use. Let's see, if you had committed a sin, you would actually go to the temple. And when you went to the temple, you would kind of come in on this, this left side because that left side is the area where there was debating going on. There were conversations. It was also where they bought and sold animals. And it was very difficult to travel a long distance with a child, let alone an animal. And so they would come to the temple and they would exchange and you'd buy an animal depending on what sacrifice was being made. And so from that area that's red on the left-hand side, you'd walk across this vast open area as people were worshiping and praying. And then if you zoom in just a little bit closer, you're going to come to this little gold door. You see it kind of on the, the southern side of this this picture. And you could imagine as you come to that door, it's not just you. There are hundreds and hundreds of people in line ready to make this sacrifice because you know there's something wrong between you and the Father. There's, this sin has created this distance, and I need to get my heart. I need to get right with God. And so what would happen? Eventually, you get to that door, that gold door, and the doors would open, and you would go in, and this sacrifice would be offered. And the priest would take the sacrifice. And the idea is this, this animal was a substitute, that what we deserve for our sin is to be rejected by the Father. But see, our Father is a God of mercy. And he has provided this symbolic way of saying there's going to be atonement, that we're not going to get what we deserve. And says someone else, our brokenness is going to fall on this person or this animal, and the wholeness of that is going to fall on us. We're going to be reconciled to the Father. 
And so in that little area past the gold doors where this, was this altar. And as the sacrifice was being made, you would talk to the Father, just like we do today. Father, listen, this is what's going on. Stole my neighbor's donkey, I, whatever happened. And, and you would be reconciled to the Father. And, and you would walk away from that experience. Because see, what the priest would say, the final thing he would say is, your sin is forgiven. Okay, let's back up to Matthew chapter 9. Let me ask you, where's the temple? Where's the little gold door? Where's the money chain? Where's the priest? Where's the sacrifice? See, that's why the Pharisees are going to have a bit, the teachers of the law are going to have a bit of an issue with what Jesus is doing. See, in in verse 4, Jesus knows that this is going to create a problem. So notice what he says. Why do you entertain such evil thoughts in your hearts? He perceives what they're thinking, and he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, both statements we could say are easy to say, but one comes with evidence. One can be proved. How do you know your sins are forgiven? Because, see, Jesus didn't go through the temple. He didn't say, take this paralytic and, and make a sacrifice. So how does this paralytic know he's forgiven? And Jesus verifies Forgiveness through this miraculous display in verse 6. But I want you to know the Son of Man, that's Jesus' reference for himself, has authority. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're putting our faith in Jesus' authority. He is the Creator. He is Lord. And how does this Creator and Lord use his authority like this to forgive sins? And so he said to the paralyzed man, verse 6, get up, take your mat, and go home. And Matthew says, hey, he got up, and he went home. And verse 8, and when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. They were terrified, in fact. Why? Because the question Matthew's answering is, who is Jesus? The winds and the waves obey him. And yet he claims this authority to stand in the place of God. And it says, and they praise God who had given such authority to man. Because, see, they didn't know exactly who Jesus was. But see, in this passage, when Jesus says he's claiming to forgive sins, you have to realize the temple was the place where heaven and earth collided. And what Jesus is saying is heaven and earth now collides in me. Heaven and earth now collides in me. God's holiness and his mercy is seen in me. God's authority and his power is seen in me. But what kind of power is it? It's the kind of power that's willing to look at a man who has lived his entire life in shame and say, my son, take heart. You are right with God simply because the man was desperate enough to come to Jesus. That's our Jesus. That's the way he uses his authority. And so from that story, we see that Jesus has the authority. He is, in a sense, like this new temple where we're made right with the Father, where sacrifice is made, where the presence of God dwells. But see, not only is Jesus, he has the authority to forgive What we see in this next story with Matthew is his generosity to forgive. 
his radical willingness to go out to people who are far from the Father and offer them forgiveness. So watch this in verse 9. Here's the second story. And all of these, again, have these deep religious implications. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And I love Matthew just says, and he rose, just like the paralytic, and he followed him. Jesus says something, and it's done. Now, Matthew is the worst of all kinds of people. He is always listed along with prostitutes and then just sinners, you know, everybody else. Anybody else we don't have a label for because they're not good enough, we're going to just throw them all in together. Matthew is at the bottom. Actually, it was interesting this morning, I was um, wondering if, have you watched the, the series The Chosen? Yeah, I wondered, okay, because I haven't gotten far enough into it, and I was wondering, is this, is this moment captured? And it is. And I have to admit, it was quite powerful. And I should have played it up here. I'm talking about it. You guys are going to be like watching it while I'm talking here. But, but Matthew's response, and especially the disciples, it's like, what? He can't. No. Matthew was an oppressor. We believe God will go to the oppressed. But do you believe in a God who will save the oppressor? We, we fight for those who are suffering injustice, but Jesus is willing to even fight for those who are unjust. The grace of God has no boundaries. I mean, you start to see that? We see Matthew, and we're like, it's Matthew. I mean, he wrote the book. Come on, he's a good guy. No, he's not. His family wouldn't hang out with him. That's what it meant to be a tax collector. Because, see, the Romans were, were quite brilliant in the way they oppressed people. They didn't just bring in a foreign army and oppress you. They used your own people. It's harder to rebel against somebody who is a part of your own tribe that you know that you grew up with, and they put those people in positions of pride and authority, and they oppress you by taxing you to the ground. So you have no resources to respond, and Matthew is a traitor in every way imaginable. So when Jesus comes to Matthew, Matthew's shocked, but everyone else is shocked. And, and notice why. This is the powerful explanation, is, is why would Jesus do this? What is... How does Jesus see himself? And so notice just quickly in verse 10, and Jesus reclined at the table. So this is Matthew's house. And Matthew wants you to know exactly what Jesus did. So he says it twice. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus. Jesus reclined with them. They reclined with Jesus. Reclining means accepting. A Jew would not enter a Gentile's home, but especially not recline. That means to relax, tell jokes, hang out, to eat. Jesus is in fellowship with people who, listen, couldn't even go near the temple. They weren't allowed that temple image. They weren't even allowed in that area because they were unclean. So here's the question. How did the unclean get clean? Well, in this new covenant that Jesus is revealing, it's because, see, God is going out to them. No longer is the story, the Old Testament story was really kind of come and see that God had set aside Israel and set aside them with these structures. And in fact, the reality is the reason that some people are offended is Scripture says don't go and eat with people like this. You know, Psalm 1, blessed is a man, doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand out of the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. You're supposed to separate. But see, what happened is when God said to separate from the world, he didn't do it as a means of pride, 
but of humility to be a light and attraction to others. But see, what happened is their separation and sacrifice became the point instead of the purpose to draw people to themselves. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes your holiness can be so holy you miss the heart of God. That you're so in pursuit of holiness and sacrifice, the sacrifice becomes the point and you miss the mercy, you miss the heart of the God that we worship. Churches can often fall into this religious attitude. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's saying that this new temple's here, but notice the way that he expresses himself because in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is he doing this? It's a fair question. And he, Jesus answers verse 12. But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I've come for the sick. And I'm going to go chase after them. No matter how sick they are. No matter how much they reject me. No matter how much they mock me, what did he say? Father, they don't know what they do as he's being crucified. This is the depth of God's mercy that as Jesus died, what happened in the, Old Testament, in the story of the temple is that the veil that, that symbolically held God's presence back, it was torn in two. And the idea is God's presence is now moving out into the world and it's landing in people like Matthew. Who's our Matthew? See, religion says there are two types of people in the world. There's the good people, and we know who we are. Use the good people. I mean, come on, you're hanging out here. We're the good people, right? You heard that attitude? And then there's the bad people. And that's sometimes the mentality of the church. But it's not the mentality of Jesus. See, if, math, if anybody's bad, it's Matthew. And yet he's at his house. Matthew was nothing like Jesus, but he was incredibly attracted to Jesus. Often the church is nothing like the world, but the church isn't attracted to the world. Don't you see there's, there's a bit, there's something wrong in, in terms of, of the way Jesus related and the way that we relate. And, and I'll tell you, grace and truth, it's difficult to get right. It's hard. It's incredibly difficult. But Jesus was attractive to people who were nothing like Jesus. And he concludes this by saying, listen, I'm a doctor, so verse 13, go and learn what this means. I've got an assignment for you, and this may be one that we need to take home today. Learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but those who need me. God goes where he's wanted. God goes where he's needed. And when he goes where he's needed, those people, they respond. Now, why is he saying, I don't want sacrifice? Because didn't God say he wanted sacrifice? He did. If you didn't know that, he did. So this is a little difficult. That's why it's shocking. But see, let, let's go back to the temple. Remember? You, you came to the temple and you went to that Solomon's portico and you bought your sacrifice and you came into the little door and you went in and the sacrifice was made and, and you walked out. Now, what's, what, what's the process of sacrifice supposed to do to your heart? It's supposed to create mercy. 
To sacrifice and walk away without mercy in your heart towards another human being means you never sacrificed. He's not saying the sacrifice is the problem. It's the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's the heart. Hey, you got anger in you? It's good you haven't murdered, but I wanna, I wanna deal with the anger that's going on. Do you have lust in you? It's not so much about do not commit adultery. I want you to not objectify other human beings, but honor their bodies and honor your body. See, it's getting down to the root of, of who God is. Do we have mercy? The purpose of the sacrifice is to produce mercy. And how much mercy have we been shown when the sacrifice is Jesus? We're not talking a goat or a lamb or a dove, but the sacrifice, if he did not spare, you know how it goes, his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Sometimes our religion can get in the way of seeing our God. And we're so impressed with our sacrifices that it doesn't lead to a heart of mercy. And Jesus is saying, I have come to rescue those who are in desperate need of me. And church, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We, we are those who, who are not, who are saved out of this radical grace, this radical experience of God's mercy to go into a world, listen, they're not going to like what we believe about. They didn't like what Jesus believed. But will you show mercy? See, what we see in this passage, Jesus has the authority, but he has the desire. And that desire for us comes when we realize the depths of what Jesus has done for us and we understand the heart of our God. Sacrifice is important, but not if it doesn't result in a life that is changed. So what's this last story for? First story tells us he has the authority, right? Second story, he is lavish with that authority. It falls wherever it falls. He reaches out, but then finally, we come to this last story. It's kind of interesting. Wineskins, unshrunk cloth, but it has a reality that Jesus is saying, I'm breaking all the old categories because something new is happening. So watch this. In verse 14, and when the disciples of John came, they said to him, why do we and the Pharisees fast? Fair question. <laughs> I'd like to eat. We're fasting here, Jesus, and you're hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners and turning water into wine, and I haven't eaten in two weeks. What's, I'd like to get on your team. Can you talk to John? Because it's not working for us. Because see, John is the greatest of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is the Old Testament, right? It's, it's, and there's nothing wrong. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful demonstration of who God is, but Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the light of day. John is midnight, and he's pointing to the light. And see, John was a very eccentric person. He, I guess he didn't want people to hear his sermons because, see, he would go out 25 miles into the desert and preach one message, repent. And the reason he's saying that is you got to, guys, listen, cleanse your heart. you got to prepare this because the, the Savior's coming. The Lord's coming. It, it's a good message. But his life was a life of mourning for sin, that he was bringing Israel to this place to recognize their desperation for God to come and to rescue them. And so fasting was a part of that recognition of where they are. And Jesus says, the reason that my disciples 
don't fast is they understand the significance of my coming. They understand the day. And so the way he describes this, it's beautiful. He says in verse 15, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn? Could you imagine fasting at a wedding? As long as the bridegroom, the bridegroom's right there. We're celebrating, guys. And listen, their celebrations weren't like four hours and then you had to leave by midnight or something like that. It was a whole week of celebration and preparation. And if you're going to prepare for a wedding that's going to last a week, two weeks, are you going to fast? And he's calling himself the bridegroom. And we are men, his beautiful bride. Sometimes men have to adopt feminine language too, guys. You are cherished. You are cleansed. This is our God that has the authority to forgive. He, he's with us. But the day's going to come when the bridegroom's going to be taken away. Jesus will die on the cross, and at that time, they will fast. And so let me end with this, this picture, and then we'll kind of apply it. No one puts, verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch. You may know this. New piece on an old garment, it's going to tear away from the garment, and so the garment's going to be made worse. And then he uses the same basic illustration. Verse 17, neither is new wine poured into old wineskins. If new wine is put into old wineskins, the skin bursts. Wine spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine, this new thing I'm doing has to get into something new. So both are preserved. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. The Spirit of God tabernacles and dwells within us. What is he saying? He's breaking the old categories of who, who, who can be forgiven, whom God's grace can fall upon, where God's love will manifest itself. All the old categories, it won't fit, it won't fit this new story. And not because those old categories were bad, they're just not big enough. They're not great enough. And see, we live in the new. You know, Jesus said, guys, listen, listen, I'm leaving, and it's going to be great. I said, what? You're leaving? How is that great? Because I'm going to leave you with another comforter, another paraclete, one that comes along. It's called the Holy Spirit. And see, it's that spirit that allows us to live in the new. It's one thing to trust God. It's another thing to experience the trust of God. Jesus makes us the children of God. The Spirit causes us to experience what it means for him to say to you, my son, my little boy, my daughter, my little girl, take heart. You know, all the stuff you're ashamed of, all the brokenness of the past, it's gone. It's gone simply because I'm with you. It's gone. The gospel says we obey because we're accepted. The acceptance comes first. Jesus moves out into the world. Because see what the Pharisees would say? You know what they'd say right now to me in the sermon? We're merciful. Come on. And if Matthew had gotten his life together, maybe made a sacrifice or two, abandoned his life working with the Romans, we would, we would accept him. Kind of sounds like the church at times. Jesus moves out with mercy. You know what mercy is? It's the ability to love somebody who's diametrically opposed to you. Yeah, it's good. 
And who are we? Church, why is Jesus the example of mercy? Because see, there's no one more diametrically opposed to God than me. I was an enemy of God, and yet he rescued me. Do you start to see what Jesus is doing? He's taking all these, these religious lines, and he's showing us our God is too big. He's too great. And we need to allow that mercy to impact us so that we can allow it to move out into the world. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I'd, I'd ask for those that are here, and they need to hear that word, take heart, my daughter, my son. You're accepted. You're not only accepted, you are precious and chosen in my sight. No matter what anyone else says, I have desired to lavishly pour out my grace on you. Holy Spirit, would you awaken our hearts to the reality of the depths of your love for us? And that as we go through the challenges in life, it's not because you're punishing us. It's not, Father, because there's something wrong in us that, that you have to some, in some harsh way get out, but instead, Lord, in that time, you want to open up the depths of who you are to us. You want us to see your mercy and your goodness towards us, but we have to admit we need you. That, Father, you go where you are wanted. You go where there is a heart in need of healing. And so enable us, Lord, by the power of your spirit to be convicted in those areas where we need to be convicted. It could be simply today we need to cry out and say, Father, accept me. On the basis of Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, I come with nothing else in my hand but my recognition that I need you. And Father, for us is the church, help us to worship you as you truly are, to be so overwhelmed with your grace and truth towards us that it allows us to break out of our definitions of love and especially our definitions of who should be loved and allow us to be the manifestation of the living God on earth as it is in heaven. Father, guide us into these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.